in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, verses 16 and 17, but mostly focused on verse 17 this morning. As you made your way there, let's pause and pray. Father, to you we turn, to you we look. Lord, hopefully by your grace to you we focus on and direct all our worship and attention. You have done, continue to do, and promised to do marvelous things that are far too grand for our comprehension. And so let us look at those let us hope in you who works all things together for our good and your glory. Let us, uh, let us be further founded in our faith and confident in your work here, your sovereign rule and reign in the hearts and lives of your people, which means the building of your church. So Lord, build us up in Jesus' name. Amen. Tuesday is Reformation Day. Of course, it is also Halloween in this culture, but it is more importantly Reformation Day. And the goal of what we're going to look at this morning is to give us something more pure and holy and wonderful to look at and to remember on, uh, on such a wicked um, day celebration that actually October 31st 1517 kind of marked a breaking in or overcoming of the darkness by God's marvelous light and the power of his word it wasn't the event that changed everything at that point in history and church history and world history but it was certainly a spark maybe the spark that gets us to where we are today. And so as we're thinking about our uh, harvest party, we're doing that as an outreach for the culture, for the community, that is celebrating something other than Reformation Day. We want to be there. We want to engage with them. We want to be where they are. We want to give them light in the midst of that great darkness. But for you, for us as a church, our celebration comes when we think of all that God has done and is doing in His efforts to build His church. And so when we talk about Reformation Day or the Reformation, we want to understand what that is. So first of all, let's start with defining Reformation. And you can go back to a sermon that was preached just a few months ago um, in which we talked about what Reformation is. And Reformation simply refers to the practice of changing or, or literally reforming an institution or a practice for whatever the reason may be. And so you can put it in its own context. And so before October 31st, 1517, you have a, a time in world history that we know as kind of the Dark Ages. 
And during these dark ages, there's basically only one type of recognized church, and that would be the Roman Catholic Church. Eventually, even through this, the uh, Roman Catholic Church splits, and then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church. But during this time, the Roman Catholic Church is the church. And the powers that be are those in papal authority or the pope and those cardinals and bishops under him. And while the Catholic Church kind of has the rule and reign of the church, so to speak, in this time, they are conducting their services, or what they call Mass, in Latin. All the priests are conducting these services in Latin. Now, at this point in time, uh, most everybody does not understand Latin. They don't know Latin. They can't read it. They can't understand it went spoken, so the mass is uh, really they don't understand what's happening. And not only that, in these dark ages, you, you, you have this happening to where they're, they're expecting to go to the church of the living God and hear the word of God, and yet they can't understand anything they're hearing. And besides that, think about books. Books in this period of time are expensive, to print, expensive to have, and slow to print. So you have hardly any access to books, let alone the scriptures. If you, if you want to label the dark ages dark for a reason, label them dark because the light of God's word is not as present as we have it so benevolently present today. So access to books, access to the Bible, access to literacy is at an all-time low in the world. And I would even go as far to say as the Catholic Church at that time had hijacked the gospel from the common man and hid it from him. And so the Lord was about to fix that. I found that even monks, those in the monastery who had taken solemn vows to renounce uh, lots of earthly things and to live a life of celibacy and to serve the church had to give up their copy of the Bible once they had reached full monkhood and read strictly theology and commentaries. Can you imagine? We're talking about Reformation Day because most scholars credit an event that occurred October 31st, 1517 through an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther as the spark that started the flames of Reformation burning. So that was more than an extremely brief introduction into why Reformation was necessary. In, 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 in some this, people did not have access to the Word of God, period. They didn't know. They didn't know what he said. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what was expected of them. They didn't know the gospel, first and foremost. So there is no access to it for the common man. And so change is needed. So let's talk about that spark that God used to bring this about. Martin Luther was born November 10th, 1483 in Eiselben, Germany, where he was to die in 1546. He was seeking a law degree at the University of Erfurt. I hope I said that right, Liz. 
Okay, okay. <laughs> when, it, when an event took place that would change the course of his life and ultimately the church. He was headed back to campus and he was caught in a storm. A storm of thunder and lightning and eventually one bolt of lightning struck extremely close to him causing him to collapse to the ground out of fear. While he's on that wet, cold ground, he cries out, Help me, St. Anne. St. Anne would be, in the Catholic Church, the Holy Mother of the Holy Mother, or Mary's mom. And he cries out, Help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And Martin Luther gets up and travels the remaining few miles back to campus and makes his friends and classmates aware of what had taken place and of the vow that he swore while on the ground. So just two weeks after that vow, Luther was at the door of the Augustinian order of monks in that town. That, that order of monks was devoted to their source of theology, and so that would have appealed to Luther. They were a very disciplined order, which would have also appealed to young Martin Luther. And while there, he made great use of his study of the Bible and grew in understanding throughout his life, which ultimately led to an academic challenge that he would issue on that October 31st, 1517. You see, while uh, preparing to become a monk and becoming a monk, Martin Luther spent a lot of time in their library uh, investigating the source of all of their theology. He was devoted uh, to the primary source of everything they were doing. And so he probably read and studied the Bible more than anybody else in that monastery. Which leads him to submit an academic challenge by nailing 95 theses to a church, the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which was common uh, practice if you were going to announce a debate, was to do that. So it wasn't out of the ordinary. And the problem that uh, Martin Luther had was with the Catholic Church's sale and use of indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? Indulgences are ways to reduce the amount of punishment that one's soul has to undergo for their sins in purgatory. And purgatory is an intermediate state after death for further purifications of sins, which obviously the Protestant Church does not recognize such a place existing. But the Catholic Church did, and they also recognized that there were certain sins that would need further purification somehow outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so these people must pay for those sins in purgatory with time or torment for however long and then certainly to be released. But indulgences were a way for you to get your loved one or friend a limited time in purgatory. And so the priests and the friars alike were in charge of selling these indulgences. And what they were offering people was, was uh, for them or th for their loved one in purgatory to benefit from 
the prayers and good works of another. And this all came down from the Pope or papal authority. So they thought um, that a soul in purgatory could benefit from the good works of those that prayed on their behalf, limiting or eliminating their time in purgatory. And so the, the priest or would you know, tell people, like, if you give so much money, then I will pray for your loved one and they will surely be released from their time in purgatory. Okay? Now, the abuse of this, even outside of the illegitimacy of it, the abuse of it came when the Catholic Church and powers that be decided that they wanted to make uh, a cathedral in what is now Vatican City one of the great wonders of the world, which we know as St. Peter's Basilica. And so all that was needed at that point was funding. So on the scene comes a, a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel. He was a perverse and disgusting man, but a great salesman. And how he uh, peddled his indulgences was this way. He made up silly rhymes and things, and he said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He said his indulgences were so effective that even if one had raped the Virgin Mary herself, his indulgences could cover that sin. So, in accordance with common academic standards announcing the, a debate, Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis against this practice of the sale of indulgences to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517. At this point in time, Martin Luther is really not condemning indulgences. He's just condemning how they're being used. It wasn't until probably two years later that Martin Luther would reach a point in his theological understanding and biblical understanding that he would uh, renounce the practice altogether. But Carl Truman, in a book on Luther and his Christian life, says this, In criticizing indulgences, Luther also did what is always guaranteed to precipitate a reaction. He hit the church where it hurts most, in her revenue department. And you even see this in the scriptures, right? When, when that uh, young lady that uh, is in custody of some masters is, is saved and she no longer uh, is, is used for their purposes or whatever they may be, however perverse they were, uh, there's a great outbreak of anger, right, against the church, against the apostles because their revenue had left. And so Carl Truman thinks that Luther should have expected uh, such a reaction as he got because he is attacking the revenue department of the Catholic Church. Now, one of these theses I'll show you. It's number 82 out of 95, and this is what Martin Luther wrote. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of the holy love and of the dire need of the souls that are there, if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church. The former reasons would be most just, the latter is most trivial. 
So you see that Luther isn't arguing about indulgences themselves, simply the perversion of them to gain money to build a church. So that's what this was, but this is sparking what is to come. So this document is credited with with bringing about such repercussions and debates that begin the actual Reformation as we know it today. It would take some time for Luther's theology and biblical understanding to come close to the tenets of the gospel and the biblical Christianity that we know today. But two years later, in 1519, lecturing through the Psalms, Luther is struck in meditating on the term righteousness of God. He turns to the verse in Romans 1, which was once a torment to him, which is what we'll look at today. But let me read to you what he said about this some years later. Meanwhile, I had already during that year returned to interpret the Psalter anew. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul and the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I had hated that word, righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost their original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments, without having God add to pain, add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel, threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he through faith is, who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. 
Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. And so let's look. And perhaps the gate of paradise may be open to some of you. Or perhaps you may be reminded again the gate in which you have walked through and rejoice as you remember how important it is that the light goes out into the darkness. So we look at Romans 1, 16 and 17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So number one, as we look at these verses, we come to understand, as Martin Luther did, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. God is, in fact, the gospel, which would mean that Jesus, as God, manifested here on earth, is the gospel, and that he is Righteous, Acts twenty two fourteen, And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Jesus is, in the gospel, the revelation of God's righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or how about 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The good news is Jesus is the righteousness of God. Why is it good news for us? Because of this. Because the righteousness of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ becomes a reproach, a reproach before God while he transfers his righteousness to us. Our reproach goes to him, his righteousness goes to us, and then as he is certainly uh, drinking down the wrath of God for that sin, three days later he is overcoming that death and satisfying that punishment by conquering death and coming out of the grave. So we know that that righteousness makes us live forever. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You have heard your brother 
Andy preached to you a couple times on how Jesus is the righteousness of God, and I would go search those sermons again. But understand, too, that while you're searching your scriptures in the New Testament, you will not hardly be able to escape a discussion or a phrase or a turn of how Jesus is the righteous one of God. It's all over the New Testament. It is, it is the theology of what the gospel is. And these verses that I've picked out to, to put before you just briefly summarize those things by showing you that it's just it's one thing to say, here's Jesus, the righteousness of God. It's another thing to say, here, it's yours. That's, that is why we have a gospel. That is why Jesus is here. It's not so that even though we're unrighteous, it'll be okay. It's so that he can get righteousness covering us so that it will be okay forever. And so that we will live in that and walk in that because it's foreign to us. Do you see how singular uh, righteousness is in not only the New Testament, but the Bible? It comes from one source. And so you better get that source right, or you're missing righteousness. Righteousness comes through Jesus. And righteousness, gospel righteousness, comes to us by faith in Him. Romans 3, 21 through 22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You remember how Jesus spoke about how the law and the prophets all spoke about Him? Well, that's what we're seeing here. They're all bearing witness to Him. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a way to satisfy the wrath of God by His blood to be received, how? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's saying that at the cross of Christ, God is punishing the sins of mankind past, present, and future. And he is at that point in time displaying to the world that he remains just and committed to righteousness. And anything that offends that, meeting it out with his wrath. That is what is happening with Jesus on the cross. At the same time, he is transferring or crediting righteousness of his Son, to whom alone it belongs, to those whom it doesn't belong. By faith that you would believe or put your trust in the fact that God provided righteousness. You see, this is what sets Martin Luther free in 1519. 
He understands that I can't get righteousness. So instead of being in despair, instead of being burdened and beaten down his whole life, he is set free because he sees that God gives it freely. He, he, he reveals it as a gift to you. He unwraps it and he says, here it is. Take it, receive it. And that's when we're born again. Is when a righteousness outside of ourselves becomes ours through extreme grace and mercy. Extreme grace and mercy. So, it would lead to the fact that those made righteous by faith through that gospel live by faith in his gospel. Paul says this beautifully in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you believe that the crucifixion of Jesus was on your behalf, to bring you righteousness and satisfy your debt payment of sin, then you will live entrusting yourself, your soul, your, your current needs, your future eternity to Him. If He was willing, if He does love you enough to give His Son for you, then what is it going to look like to live according to to His Word and His way now. To entrust all of yourself to Him now. This is what we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 6, by the way. That those who have been crucified with Christ entrust themselves to Christ. Entrust themselves to the Father, whom you're taught to pray to at the beginning of Matthew 6. To your Father who cares for you in ways that, that you, you don't even quite understand. who clothes you in ways that uh, you have yet to comprehend, who will provide all that you need for, for your time and mission here for His purposes, and then promises you a kingdom, a kingdom as an inheritance for you. And if we believe that, then we entrust ourselves to Him. When we're reviled for His name's sake, we don't revile in return. When we're in need, we, we know that He will supply and He will not allow us to be separated from His love. That we're never outside of His will, that we're never taken from His hand. And that Romans 8.28 is true. That all things would encompass all things and that all those things would work together for good to those who are called according to His purposes. They are those who have been crucified with Christ and live in faith of what He promises to do now and what He promises to do then. Hebrews 10, 37-39 For 
Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You continue in the Christian faith, number one, because you're held by God, and number two, because you believe God every day. Every day. In some measure, whether it be small or whether it be a really good day of faith, you believe Him and you're preserved. You, you don't run away from the challenges that face the Christian. You believe God, you believe His care, you believe His love, you believe His promises, and you're preserved. And that's the work of God. It's not your work. So that's a description of the righteous ones that will live by faith in the righteous one. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we talked a little bit about seeking last week, or no, a couple of weeks ago. Right? Seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness and all the things that you need will be added to you. Okay? He, he is about drawing near us to him and him to us. That's a promise. That's a desire. That's an eternal desire which he will fulfill as he dwells with his people forever. That's the goal. That's the goal of the gospel. It's to make a royal priesthood and a holy nation which will dwell in His glory forever. Not to be separated by any such thing. And He's made that possible in Christ. And to please God is to not be the, uh, the best worker of goods that you could be. It's to live in faith. I mean, read the Gospels. Did the Pharisees, were they pleasing to Jesus? No. They were upsetting to Jesus. He's, he's, he's looking for people, even that Roman centurion soldier, who, who just have faith in Him every day. And by the trust in Him, by the love for Him, they're going towards Him every day and the promise in the scripture is that he will reward and care for you for those who seek him and we can talk sometime about that reward that reward is him galatians 3 5 through 9 i'll read this to you to see who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You bring nothing to the table for your salvation 
or for your acceptance before God other than the fact that you believe Him when He tells you, I've provided it for you and I will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord. You believe that? I mean, for those of you that have raised kids or are raising kids and you promise them something, you promise them that it'll go well with them if they try hard in school or whatever the case may be, uh, how pleasing is it to you when they believe that? When they walk in that because they believe it? That's, that's a trust and a faith that God is looking for. It's a trust and a faith that God works in the life of the believer. And that faith will preserve His people to the end. And so we are children of Abraham if we are of faith, belief in God, justified by that faith, rewarding us with a righteousness because we believed that He is so merciful and so gracious that He would do what He promised. Now, the motto of the Reformation that comes out of the Reformation is, is post tenebris lux. It's a Latin phrase that means after darkness, light. And this justification by faith, or being made right with God by faith, believing He's provided a righteousness for us outside of ourselves, is the light that is... Uh, entering the darkness and exposing it and overcoming it. This is, the, this is uh, the light that is the life in Jesus that He brings to us. And so you read this at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in a region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What, what's coming out of the Reformation that was held captive that people didn't see for so long was Jesus. The good news of His presence with us, his, his bringing the righteousness of God to bear on sinners, to, to set them free from sin and death, to call them out of their dwelling of darkness, to live in an eternal dwelling of light. The gospel, that gospel, is going to be brought to the people once again. And so you and I, have a Bible that we can read on our phones and on our nightstands because God did not allow His Word to be held captive. God did not allow the gates of hell to overcome His church, but God continued to build it. And He used moments like uh, October 31st, 1517 to continue to build it. And so we kind of go back uh, in that short amount of time since then and, and see and celebrate that God never stopped winning, that God never stopped building His church, that God uh, never was able to succumb to the, the evil plans of the evil one and evil men, but that He would always get His gospel out, that He would always uh, save sinners
1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We have such a present light today. Even though things seem crazy and chaotic and dark, there's un unimaginable horrors as men who are inventors of evil carry out their desired devices. There is a great and greater presence of light here because His gospel is here. His people are here. His spirit lives and indwells His people, bringing light to the world. And we can't ever discount that. We can't ever be so in despair because of that reality. It's real. His light is here. You and I have it to share, to help people understand. But how does He do this? How does He do the gospel? How does he bring good news? How, how is it in the world? Well, I think it may be helpful that coming out of that Reformation, we have a summation of the gospel clarified. And, and, and mind you, the, the big thing coming out of the Reformation is that sinners are justified by grace through faith. That there's not a priest or a pope who's going to justify us. That there's not several things we have to do to get justified. That there's no money we have to pay to get justified. But that it comes strictly through Jesus. Period. And that it's lived out through faith in Him. And He alone... And that grace alone, that faith alone, is understood only in the Scriptures alone. These holy confirmed Scriptures. Not imitators of it, but these Scriptures. And it was the Gospel was summarized in what are called five solas coming out of that point in church history. Sola means alone. So the gospel is one of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. You add anything to that, you don't have the gospel. And we want to make sure that not only do we have the gospel, but everyone else has the gospel. So, that's what we do, and that's what we receive, and that's what we celebrate. That it is, He has made it so abundantly known, right? And so we want to we remember that October 31st back then. But more importantly, we want to remember the gospel. We want to remember the power of God who does things like that in such marvelous, wonderful, 
ways. So remember this gospel. Meditate on this gospel. Share this gospel and live according to this gospel out of complete trust and confidence in it and watch God glorify himself with your life. To him alone be the glory.